0: With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom. Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. Back in November, the 1st of November, I uh, talked with Professor Jack Heineman on this program. You heard that if you were listening at the time. Professor in the School of Biological Sciences, University of Canterbury. Director, Center for Integrated Research and Biosafety and a big long CV to go with all of that. And what was that about back then? Um, we were talking about why we should not deregulate GMOs, and that was not too long after the election, where two of those coalition parties have, I guess, what they would uh, call progressive policies on GM and GO. So um, given that uh, some messaging has kind of come out very uh, recently relating to this, thought it would be a good idea to invite Professor Jack Heineman back to our show Professor Heidemann, nice to see you again.
1: And nice to see you. Thanks for having me back.
0: Okay, so um, so they're still talking this, right? The the Nats and the and ACT Party specifically, which kind of means that it's it's probably all go. Is, is that what your feeling is?
1: I, I would presume there's a lot of political will. The yeah. uh, the narrative's not new. It's the same narrative we've been hearing for 40 or 50 years, but uh, it's just renewed um, by the mouths that are speaking it and some of the um, subtext.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about some of what has been said by some of the people who uh, uh, have been, uh, well, covered by or given a platform by the Science Media Centre, they asked experts to outline the current state of genetic technology regulation and what could change under National's harnessing biotech plan. You've got to have a, a label, a heading for these uh, things. And, um, okay, you just mentioned that this uh, messaging's been around for ages, but it's this piece has suddenly popped out of, well, I wouldn't say nowhere, but usually without uh, it being any sort of other issue or, or, or anything else being said from another angle, usually this um, you you could think this is part of of initiating another messaging campaign in advance of you know some kind of announcement or, or real clear direction.
1: Well, uh, there has been it doesn't come out of the uh, out of the blue. So, worldwide, there is pressure on governments to relook at their regulations, particularly in this area of gene technology. Hmm. New Zealand is just one of the many fronts for this kind of, of press. And our technical experts here are just as connected in to these various scientific, professional, as well as industry networks as they are in any other country. So You'll see very consistent language being used and a very consistent narrative. It's um, not necessarily fundamentally different from previous iterations of the narrative. Every time a new technology arose, it was going to feed a starving world. Uh, we've had this since the Green Revolution. Then through the 70s, 80s, and 90s with the introduction of transgenic crops, we need them to feed the world. and. The same thing now is happening with the newer techniques that can be applied uh, specifically in plants, such as the genome editing techniques. We need them to feed the world. And National and ACT often refer to this narrative in their own documents. That and we're going to save the world by making magic genes that make plants magically able to grow without water and entirely Uh in salt. <laughs> um, wow, what a breakthrough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and it's, it is an emphasis on the gene in the, our relationship with these organisms. And once again, I want to remind everyone I am a genetic engineer and uh, I know that genes are really powerful elements, but traits are not the same thing as genes. And many traits are a complex outcome of the interaction of all sorts of both genetic and cellular events, ultimately organismal events. Genes give us the parameter space for those events to occur in. But since the Green Revolution, we have put an emphasis on making the environment conform to our genes. Right. We read for a particular environment, and then we say to farmers, Ch- "Change your farm into an environment that makes these genes behave the way we expect them to do." Okay, that's yep. revolution thinking. So that's that's
0: that's like flipping nature, really.
1: Well, it's it's a it's a type of or an ideological way to approach agriculture. You can highly control the breeding process, the genetic engineering process. You can highly control that. But it's much more difficult either to control the great earth of environments or to make money from controlling those environments. You can't get the same type of intellectual property rights instruments for uh, an irrigation scheme that you can get from making a genetically modified organism. So the the emphasis, both commercially and practically, has been on what you can control and what you can make the most margin from. And then what you do is you let the rest of the world change their farms into something that supports your genes. Yep. The other way to look at this, and, and I'm not saying that we have to choose one or the other exclusively, but we have done so much more. With our science of understanding soil structure, what makes you know a really healthy uh, paddock, what kind of irrigation schemes are important, what kind of fertilizer, how you avoid heavy inputs primarily by not cropping with monocrops, we, we can do so much more making our environment optimal for whatever genes we have. Mm. than we ever will be able to do by coming up with the type of super plant or super cow that is going to, in in one genome, have the ability to live in any kind of condition, including Mars. Yeah. Okay, so the Science Media Centre has noted two
0: Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisors, Science New Zealand Plant and Food Research. Gene Editing Expert Panel convened by the Royal Society, Te Aparangi. All previously, they have supported an update to the current system. What about Voices of Scientific Doubt? Do they get a look in?
1: Uh, Well, I I don't know if uh, I don't get a look in for that reason
0: or for other (laughs) reasons. You can just answer the question.
1: But but certainly, uh, you know, the Royal Society didn't reach out to me um and and yeah maybe maybe it does suggest a little bit of a lock in in our community. Uh you have highly motivated entrepreneurially um directed technical experts that whose voices have been collected here. And uh you know I am Published in this area, and I serve on at the international level, producing guidance on risk assessment, risk management, and agriculture. Uh, So, um, even though it's a small country, there probably were obvious voices they could have uh, engaged in this. But on the other hand, from my perspective, you wonder whether your if if I had been asked and then had decided. participate, whether that would give credibility to a decision-making process that I didn't believe in. Uh, It's it's gotten to the point where to be a critic is also possibly to have some value by uh, inclusion uh, as a minority.
0: Yeah, like window dressing kind of role.
1: A, A tokenistic approach to incorporating that voice. And I'm not saying that would have happened. I mean, I don't know what Mm. would have happened, Mm. Uh, but it is something we have to consider when you have the the real power of industry, entrepreneurial and political alignment in the area of biotechnology, whether we do get open fair fora for considering different points of view.
0: Certainly in this area, because everyone inevitably can or will be affected by it okay so um i'm looking and you just um mentioned the word entrepreneurial i'm looking at some of the um the names that were uh, providing that expert commentary and what they do what they say and what they they do one thing that strikes me about and we'll go through some of that in just a moment about what these people say is they just sound so confident you know, like like really confident. like there's no doubt. How could you reach that level of confidence, do you think?
1: I don't know, because I don't have it. Uh, I, and there's but I can remember now for 20 years or so, science communication has really developed. And almost always, as scientists, we were told to quit expressing uncertainty. Right. Putting error bars on our statements because the public wasn't smart enough to understand that your qualification wasn't a disqualification of the ultimate beauty of the science and the technology you were talking about. So we've been, uh, for a while, training scientists to be far more. Unfutted. Overly confident, yeah, uh, and 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 simple in our messaging, but uncertainty is always a part of highly technical scientific enterprises. There has to be an uncertainty level. So I'm also a little bit, I guess, uh, skeptical when i see such statements being made it does it doesn't look to me like they're being made for the benefit of society it looks like they're being made primarily for the benefit of the technical developer yep. who may also believe that what they're doing is good for society
0: and that's the entrepreneurial bit that comes into it then and we and we know that um that is a very strong uh, motivation if if someone's been uh, Caught that bug. Okay, so um let's go through a few of these. Science media expert commentary was provided by Dr. Ravel Drummond, scientist at Plant and Food Research Limited, who says the law should be simplified, made consistent, and updated to reflect current scientific understanding. Well, you'll have a comment on that. Reflect current scientific practice and that too, but also be forward-looking and flexible better align with the laws of our major trading partners, and better reflect current citizen and consumer attitudes. And there's more. But it turns out um, that his conflict of interest is investigating potential of gene technologies in a New Zealand context. So he would say that, wouldn't he?
1: Well, I mean, one could, naive, you know, at face value, the statement just says he investigates the impacts or, or whatever of gene technology. It doesn't mean that um, he is uh, investigating how to introduce gene technology. So I, I, I don't
0: really know. Okay, so there's not even um, enough to go on there, really. Yeah, so, yeah.
1: but but certainly there's an, a number of people who are aligned with institutions who are on a public track record of being very unequivocal uh, in supporting and uh, advocating for the introduction, not of gene technology, because remember, we have gene technology here. We're using it every day in both private and public laboratories. It's a fundamental underpinning of the kind of science that scientists like me do. And it has been for many decades. There's a fundamental difference between advocating for gene technology and for products of gene technology. Uh, In in the very same way that you can say, uh, I advocate for research on aerodynamics but I don't advocate for intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yeah. This is a key that's distinction. It. Yeah. Right? Um but there are many uh there are many uh, the public sector since the neoliberal reforms of the 80s has to return something based on the output of its activity and it does that by producing intellectual property and then licensing it to the private sector. And the private sector will only license intellectual property that it can make a margin of profit from. Of course. Yeah. And that's the product of gene technology, not necessarily the gene thing. So that's what gets out is the product. Yes. um, If anything gets out. Yeah. That's right. So the advocacy, when it becomes for the product, is aligned with some type of application or commercial interest in general. That's a bit stereotypical, but mostly true. Uh, And Advocacy for the the techniques and the ability to use the techniques to understand living things and also to breed organisms that do fit our environmental parameters, that's very much different.
0: Yeah. Okay, I just want to mention a couple more of these because I think it helps people to get it straight in their own minds. Dr. John Carrad CEO of Grasslands Technology Limited. He's quoted in this as saying, while a cautious approach to regulating GM crops may have been justified in the early years of GM crop commercialization, in the interim 25 years with an expanding knowledge of plant genomic, genomics, it's now understood that the genetic engineering process itself presents little potential for unexpected consequences that would not be identified or eliminated in the variety development process before commercialization. G- can, he, can he really say that with any sort of um, certainty?
1: There is there is a valid basis for saying such things. I personally don't agree yeah. that you can take it to the extreme of now saying we can have confidence in every process to yield a safe product or that the use of regulation would be disproportionate to ensuring a safe product. I don't agree with that outcome, but there are... What we do as genetic engineers is still determined by the laws of physics. We can't do something that this universe doesn't allow to be done because we're not we're not magicians. So So some are trying to be, it seems to me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But um, but in that sense, that process is something that we find is um, that we find in nature, too right? Making mutations. Um, But what is special to to people's use of gene technology is that it's a technology. It means that we can make things faster and larger numbers in greater numbers of species all at once than is typically found in nature. We are able to concentrate events to a point where outcomes would not be predictable based on our experience of evolving on this planet before. Okay. And so this idea that you can trust a process such that it is effectively safe by design, that idea is antithetical to me. You cannot trust a technological process to be automatically safe in its outcome. We've been flying airplanes reasonably safely now for about a hundred years. And in the early days, there may have been reasons to regulate those biplanes and 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 whatever, because we knew so little about flying airplanes. So but now, you know, we know how to make them so we shouldn't worry about it anymore. And then we read about a door falling off of an advanced Boeing aircraft, right? When it's flying from Hawaii. And we all flip out. Yeah and And the point is, the manufacturing process for that airplane is well embedded. Yeah. And it's still failed. And, and just and and so we regulate those advanced, powerful technologies, both by certifying the product that comes out, but also by certifying continually the process through which those planes are manufactured. So yes, we did get a blowout of a a door, but we have thousands of flights around the world every day with no adverse outcome to human life. And that's inseparable from understanding that technology is primarily a harm generator through scale. So you have to both modulate the process of producing those planes, as well as regulate their post-production safety.
0: Yep. Otherwise, yeah, bad things and the happen. The same
1: is true for gene technology. Yeah. So just because I can make something that will turn out to be safe doesn't mean that I can't, I'm prevented from making something purposefully or by accident that is unsafe. There's and nothing in technology to prevent me from making something unsafe. Yeah. Through incompetence.
0: Yeah, well that's right. <laughs> Dr. Alec Foster is the portfolio leader bioproducts and packagings packaging Sion. And um and he's quoted as saying, New Zealand's rigid regulatory framework has shifted innovation. Sorry, stifled, stifled innovation in both research and commercialization. The regulatory burden has been cited by notable biotech companies as a primary reason for moving offshore. That that's like kind of sounds a bit blackmaily.
1: Yes, uh, it's the same thing the film industry says, right? So your subsidies aren't big enough, so I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah. these are commercial decisions, and there's there's no question that there's a whole number of financial reasons to to influence where somebody is it it um it I am unaware of any real solid evidence. That suggests that the primary position taken by biotech companies to be in or not in New Zealand is our regulations. And I'm certainly unaware of any kind of credible evidence that shows our regulation is stifled innovation. The very fact of the matter is that even in the countries that for the last 40 years have had the most permissive laws on the use of genetic modification... They do not have any of these wonder genes and wonder plants and animals that are still being promised. Right. Wow. The United States, the most liberal and largest economy on GM in the world, is still a country that produces herbicide tolerant crops or insecticide producing crops. That's pretty much it. Everything else is a tiny, tiny proportion, small acreage, boutique application. None of them are drought tolerant. None of them grow in higher levels of salt because of genetic engineering. Meanwhile, over those 40 years, both New Zealand and the United States have made tremendous advances in breeding that have yielded plants whose baseline drought tolerance is way higher than it was 40 years ago. Not by genetic engineering, but by the biotechnology of breeding in a conventional way. yeah. So that doesn't mean that they have to be at odds with one another, but we are being sold a line that there is an easy pathway to the miracle plant, and all we have to do is not care about the possibilities that the same power that can yield this truly amazing new kind of organism is incapable of yielding an undesirable one. Mm. And
0: we don't know how, how it would fit in really, do we? Because there's so many variables as well. So it could be a disaster. We've we've seen what's happened in the last three years. Don't need to right. to make that point anymore. I'm I'm just curious, you might have a view on this. Seems to me that the Greens of not too long ago were, you know, you, you mentioned GE and they'd flip out, they'd they'd fall over and they, and they they wouldn't like it. There seems to be an acceptance of it now in that part of the political spectrum.
1: How come that is, do you think? I really don't know. And I, I can't I don't have any special insight into the Green Party. Um I know that they still have a constituency that isn't comfortable. And I don't know if um the Green Party is an advocate of deregulation they may have t- i don't know but they may have taken a uh, a view that there's a that there's a potential for gene technologies to contribute to products in the future but that view if if that's what they have um is very different from saying that we should deregulate that the pathway to achieving that benefit is predominantly through deregulation
0: i guess uh, the point i'm making is I, i'm not hearing a chorus of jumping up and down from from there
1: oh right yes i guess i don't have any special insight no no but
0: i just thought you, you, you might have a view on that okay if any of the significant politicians are listening to this uh, jack what would you say directly to them
1: what I would say is that regulation is a really important element of our democracy. It is what balances the power uh, and the aspirations of those with power and the obligations we have to the public in general. Now, we often will see in the media, people say scientists think this, but the public thinks that, and they forget that the scientist is part of the public, that regulations behind gene technology are also written by scientists. There are scientists who inform policy. There are scientists who sit on the international guidance panels that put together frameworks for policy legislation that countries then harmonize their domestic legislation to. This is not some kind of rabble of cave people who write laws and scientists. That's not that kind of dichotomy. There is science embedded throughout our system. These laws and approaches and regulation didn't come from nowhere. They were informed by science. Not all scientists agree that you need to regulate in the way we do. And in fact, there may be better ways to regulate GMOs. But what we're being forced into is an all-or-none equation. Either we're going to regulate or we're not going to regulate is constantly the narrative that we're hearing. We hear this dressed up in fancy terms like tearing. And all tearing is, as far as I can tell, is to exempt from regulation a group of genetically modified products while we retain regulation on others. And previously, we regulated both. Mm -hmm. And for the appropriate reason that the responsible use of safe biotechnology should be assured. And it should be assured by regulation. Going back 24 years-ish to the Royal Commission, it said... Proceed in a way that allows coexistence. You can only coexist if you regulate. Regulation is the pathway to coexistence. It gives you credibility and ensures the public interest is represented in those products. New Zealand is a party to the Cartagena Protocol on Biosafety, which is... The largest collection of countries who have a singular type of legislative framework that supports regulation on genetically modified organisms. So when we hear politicians say, oh, you know, um, we're out of line with our trading partners or we're we're an extreme, we're not the ones who are extreme are the minority countries who don't belong to the Cartagena Protocol. Those minority countries are the United States, Australia, Hmm. probably North Korea. I don't know. North Um, Korea, okay. I don't know. But a very small number of countries, comparatively, don't belong to the Cartagena Protocol. We are in the group of consensus. We're just not in the group of consensus with the United States.
0: Oh, is that... that's. That's where it all hits, is it?
1: And Canada. I'm sorry, Canada is the other one.
0: Yeah. Okay. I get it now. All right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Professor Jack Heinemann, um, School of Biological Sciences, University of Canterbury. Thanks for coming on again.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. With your help, we can
0: continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate.